0: Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at morbidlybeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful right now for all your horror pop culture needs, from interviews to top ten lists and, well, everything in between. They also have a great library of podcasts which you can listen to right after you finish this episode today. Before we get started, I do have a brand new review to read for you, and it comes from Fur Baby Mom twelve nineteen on Apple Podcasts. It's a short and sweet one. It's a five-star review that says, "I like ye, real nice short info cast. I dig it." Thanks, Fur Baby Mom. That means a whole lot. And if you do want your review read out on the podcast, do leave one on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like I said, all five-star reviews will be read out on the program. Now on to today's episode. I have an interview for you. Yes, another interview. I enjoy talking to people, so when somebody contacts me and wants to hop on the show and talk about any work that they've done or that they're promoting a new piece of work of fiction or fact or whatever, I'm always welcoming. And today's guest is no exception to that welcome. We have Meg Smith. She's an award-winning journalist, published author, and poet, and she came on to the show today to talk about her experience and her new book, a collection of short stories called The Plague Confessor. This is Meg Smith. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. It sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Oh Alrighty, I'm here with Meg Smith. She's a writer, journalist, all sorts of creative things, and she just released her very latest short story collection called The Plague Confessor. So thank you for coming on the show and congratulations on the release of your latest publication. So first, what did it feel like when you found out that your work was getting published? What were the emotions that were going on inside your head? How were you feeling? What kind of elation was it? I think a lot of people want to know that considering there are quite a few aspiring writers out there. So just share that emotion with us.
1: Oh, well, definitely there's a lot of emotions um, that go with that, um, with publishing any kind of book for sure. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I like to think of that I, I published in quotes my first book of short stories when I was um, 13. And that was basically oh, yeah. taking, yeah, that was basically taking a, a bunch of short stories that I had variously written and putting it into a notebook and, and saying, yes, I published um, <laughs> a book of short stories. Um, but uh, writing is something that I've done my whole life. It, it is my career, both as a, a journalist and a, a writer of Uh, fiction and poetry Mm -hmm. and um, so I had had various short stories published over the years in different types of publications most of them horror and gothic and science fiction publications and I knew that I really wanted to as a grown up as you will uh, put out a collection just as I had done when I was a kid when I was 13 Mm -hmm. so um, the title of the title story of this book, The Plague Confessor, I actually wrote um, two years ago, so pretty much well before the the pandemic with which we find ourselves in. But with all of the emotions and and all of the experiences that people are going through during the pandemic, it definitely made sense to me that this should be um, the lead story for this book. So, um, And even though it takes place during the Middle Ages, during the Black Plague, Uh, It was important to me, even though these are works of fiction, to also present something that would resonate with the times that that we find ourselves in.
0: There's no denying that the book is very, very topical, given the name of it and what's going on in the world right now with the pandemic and such. Now, I want to ask, was that a conscious effort to release something called The Plague Confessor during a pandemic, or was it just kind of a coincidence
1: I think it was honestly um, just a a, a kind of a coincidental thing, just the the course of of events in um, our history that we're living in. I've always had, I should say, I've always had an interest in public health. Both my parents were in nursing, and um, my late husband was a scientist, and he was in public health administration for a long time. And um, so the effects of public health, including the effects of say, a, a mass illness or a pandemic, such as the coronavirus and uh, the consequences of that, both in, in terms of people's health, but also the the havoc that it can wreak on society. I think that, that that's something that I've always been interested in and always studied. Um, and i had done some research on the so-called Black Plague taking place in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. and. I wanted to craft a story at that time about some of some of the interesting things that happened. One of which was that um, the Pope had declared at that time because so many priests and, and indeed just so much of the population was dying that there were a lack of priests to hear people's confessions. And so he basically released an edict saying even if there's there's no one else around to hear your confession, a woman can hear your confession. So the story actually revolves around a, a woman in a, in a town in Italy who um, is, as it happens, a prostitute and the only one who's, who's well enough or, or willing to go out and hear people's confessions um, during the plague. So I think every, um, just as we saw in the AIDS crisis, and I think to some extent as we're seeing in the coronavirus crisis, um, there were populations that, tend to become marginalized Mm -hmm. we're hearing a a lot about um this illness uh, afflicting certain vulnerable populations um and in affecting in disparate numbers um people of color Mm -hmm. so i think uh one thing that a a mass epidemic brings out in relief uh, are the vulnerabilities of our population and certainly the inequities
0: yeah you're not wrong the pandemic has hit different groups, different economic and ethnic classes a lot differently than it has hit other ones. Uh, especially up here in Canada, we find that a lot of the more hot spotty areas are definitely more of the impoverished areas. So I do get where you're coming from, especially from like a, a socioeconomic standpoint. But that is a discussion for a different podcast. But uh, given the nature of your book here, the collection of short stories, and you did mention that you started writing it a little while ago, can you take us through that process, the timeframes and all that sort of stuff going on with the writing and the putting together of this collection?
1: Well, um, that's a great question. Basically, what I did was I I started to gather up stories that I had written and had been published in, in various places, and some of them go back to about 1993 oh, okay. so up, up to the present day mm-hmm. and i wanted to do that because first of all i, I thought well what i was writing back then um, is gonna reflect some different things to what i'm writing now so it would have the effect of having uh, more variety variety of different types of storytelling and different types of stories well of course um even in that amount of time a lot of things have changed. For example, some of the stories that, that I wrote um, were written in a time when most of us weren't texting <laughs> or, um, or or that, that technology wasn't affecting our lives um, to the extent that it is now. Right. So for those stories, I kind of, I wanted them to still be true to the times they were written in, um, but relatable to now. So in some cases, I um, tweaked them a little bit to put them in some um, historical context, for example, there's, there's one story called Kites, which takes place during the, um, the, Bo- the Bosnian War and, and the ethnic cleansing um, atrocities that took place. Well, that was in the early 90s. So there was a case where I basically um, just put an, int- an introductory sentence, which stated that this was happening, um, the, the majority of the story was happening in this particular prisoner's camp in this place and time Mm -hmm. so that it would just be a a little bit of an anchor for the reader to um who because there are uh, people who perhaps don't remember that time um and even for those who do just to give it some some context Mm -hmm. um so i think overall um i managed to succeed in having even those stories back then ring true to now um, as well as the contemporary stories. Um, and I think you'll probably agree technology and how it changes <laughs> is something that I think a lot of writers wrestle with mm-hmm. these days. like um, y- you know, should, should I write it should I have the character texting? The monster's coming. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Or maybe the monster's doing the texting. but <laughs> right. yeah. Hey. yeah, but um, every writer I've talked to, certainly, and, and maybe as well has said, well, I, I have to find a way, if I'm gonna write a story that's set in a contemporary time, Mm-hmm. Have to wait, find a way to make it ring true, given how pervasive technology is in our lives right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, even if you look back at movies from, say, the 80s, if only they had a cell phone, right? Hey, there's a guy with a machete at the lake coming to kill me. Send help. Credits roll.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, it, when you think about it, yeah, it, it's so true. A lot of those uh, stories would be upended. Um, yeah in some way, or you'd have to like put the characters on a desert island or someplace where, uh, you know, the technology just isn't relatable.
0: Right, you almost have to add a new plot element to say why they don't have a phone.
1: Right, Or er, and and or um, you know, to, to be honest with you, to some degree, I kind of just made peace with it and stories that are set in the present day, I just um, said, well, yeah, some of these characters might well use their phones and, and the phones might advance the plot. Mm-hmm in some way. Um, and maybe there will be a time when that's those stories or that technology won't be as relatable to a future audience. And, and maybe I'll either just go back and make some adjustments like I did for some of those earlier stories. Or, uh, you know, we certainly read great stories from the 18th and 19th centuries. And, and the mid-century and the 20th century was a great time For storytelling, for novels and short fiction, and we just read them in the context of their time and and appreciate them as such.
0: Yeah, that uh, brings us to a good segue, actually. It says here on the back cover of your book that some of the stories in this novel or this collection are very reminiscent of Ray Bradbury. And we all know what Ray Bradbury used to really write about. So how much inspiration did Ray and his works have on this collection or your past or even future writings?
1: Well, um, Ray Bradbury definitely um, was and is um, a great influence to me and one of my favorite writers. And uh, talk about a a writer who was writing in a certain place and time uh, whose work still rings true. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the language that he uses is very beautiful and poetic and precise. Um, Ray Bradbury was never and I don't think he ever set out to be what's sometimes known as a hard science fiction writer. In other words, even though he has stories about space travel and time travel and so forth, uh, they're not they're not so much focused on 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 technical precision as they are the experience of the characters in the story. And I would say for sure, I I read the Martian Chronicles when I was about 13 Mm -hmm. and I really loved the idea that you could write a whole novel that was an assembly of short stories, because each chapter in that book is a short story that could stand on its own. Right, right. Um, and that's something I, and I certainly have tucked away in the back of my mind. I, I actually started writing over the years various um, vampire short stories that were published in different places, and so... That's kind of on my homework list <laughs> to put that together um, in a novel. But I would say though Ray Bradbury is a great influence to me, is, is, and I owe a lot to him and many other writers, the writer's obligation is still to create their own work, their own voice, and, um, and certainly be inspired by those earlier voices. Edgar Allan Poe is, is another writer that, um, that I love. Um, but the challenge I think that those writers put before us is to create our own vision um, and our own story and and maybe hopefully we'll we'll be inspiring to a future generation of writers that would be great.
0: Yeah, you never know who might be reading your works and who you might inspire in the future. I mean who knows maybe somebody picks up your book on Amazon and inspires them to write and they become the next oh I don't know, uh, bram stoker prize winning author you just never know
1: well that would be a great one um and and i I hope you'll let me um interject a little bit because (laughs) um i have to give um a shout out to bram stoker in in particular um because i'm a first generation irish-american my mom is from ireland um my dad grew up in charlestown which um, was very much an irish-american enclave of boston and um so to me this was a pretty potent um cultural setting and um bram stoker um as the author of dracula was irish he um, grew up in a place called clontarf he was born there in 1847 and um, when i was in dublin uh, two years, in september two years ago I, I took myself on a little walking tour of some different things in dublin that i wanted to see and of course one of those things on that list was a house that bram stoker lived in (laughs) so um definitely from a cultural heritage standpoint um i'm very proud of of the whole of the irish literary tradition and i'm definitely proud as a writer of, of horror and speculative fiction that um that it was an irishman who penned um a novel dracula that's never gone out of print and has inspired and so many writers and artists and so many mediums too um so I definitely have to uh, tip my hat to um, what I humbly think of as a literary ancestor, <laughs> Bram Stoker.
0: Yeah, uh, we all know inspiration plays a huge role in anybody's creative works. So how does your past work in poetry inspire your fiction stories, your short stories, or any novels that you may have cooking up in your brain?
1: Well, I think um, I've always been a lover of poetry, and a lot of my writing, in fact, is primarily um, Poetry, but I think one thing that poetry does is um, it can train both the eye and the ear of the listener and the writer. Um, because in poetry, generally speaking, all the words have to do some kind of work. And and I actually think about that as a newspaper editor and writer. It, that very similarly, although in a different medium, every word. Um, in a poem has to be doing some kind of work because you're somewhat limited um, in what you're going to say and how you're gonna say it. And um, also poetry, when it's read aloud, allows you to really hear how words sound and how they work together um, to convey to the reader something that the reader's gonna relate to, but is still said in an original way that to me is kind of the challenge um, of poetry. And I have, um, I have five um, poetry books out, um, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm also kind of humbled at um, the ability and the opportunity to do that. And I've had a lot of poems published in different publications and journals over the years, and, and now of course online, as well as in print. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, even if someone doesn't really set out to be a career poet, Writing poems, it seems to me, is, is actually a good way to, to kind of train oneself to organize words and organize thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it can be helpful, um, even if someone considers themselves mainly a writer of prose or fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Because in, in fiction as well, all the words should matter and all the words should sound like they go together. And you should be saying something original in that story that the reader relates to, but you're still saying it to the reader in a way that's like new and unexpected. So I, I actually think the two disciplines of poetry and prose go, to be, go together very well and can help each other.
0: Now that's very well said. Now we've mentioned a few times as well that you are also a journalist and you work out of Lowell, Mass. Is that a place you're still working out of? Is that kind of your headquarters? What's the, uh, the story with that?
1: Yes, I, um, well, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I've lived in Lowell, Mass, um, for a long time. By the way, the, uh, the birthplace of, of another great um, writer, Jack Kerouac. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, right now, I, I guess I'm, I'm really based in Lowell because all of us have been working from home since right. the advent of the coronavirus. The, um, I, and I did get my start at the, the hometown paper here in Lowell, the Lowell Sun. Okay. Um, as a freelancer and um, currently I work for um, a group of newspapers that um, includes a lot of suburban weeklies for many of our local uh, cities and towns and that's really exciting um, work and, and again a, the goal of a journalist somewhat different from writing um, short stories or novels but um, you're, you're still in some ways accomplishing a similar task. Um, you're trying to report information, you know, truthfully and objectively and stepping away from any um, opinion or, or bias that the journalist might have. Because as human beings, we all have them. But as a journalist, you're trained to put that aside so you can see all sides of a story. Right. And um, it's a challenging time to be a journalist, but I still love it. I've been doing this work for about for um, it will be coming up on thirty years in November, <laughs> and um, a lot of great writers have also had that we that we respect and admire have also had careers in, in journalism at some point, mm-hmm. and um, so I feel a kindred to them as well, and and I feel a great responsibility in telling us in telling a story in the medium of journalism in a truthful um, and faithful way.
0: Now you started writing very young. Around 13 years old, you said you published your first little creative work, and then you transitioned into journalism. What was the correlation between writing fiction to journalism? Is there any? Was it just sort of a happenstance thing? Tell us how journalism and your creative writing kind of blend or work into each other or whatever the story or the case is there.
1: Well, I think from, from the time I was probably about five or six years old, I... I really had this idea in my mind that i definitely wanted to be a writer and there's other other pursuits that i enjoy as well and that i like doing um, but i always knew that um that the written word in different forms was always going to be a part of my life and i saw that it could also be fashioned into a career So really early on, like as a kid, um, as I mentioned, I I started writing short stories and and even what I refer to as as novels and poetry. Um, But I also like to create like little periodicals, um, uh, like newspapers and magazines and things like that. And then, of course, in high school and as well as in college, I was on the school newspapers. And also when I was in college, founded um, a literary supplement to school newspapers. So I think I kind of always knew that, um, and I feel fortunate in a way to kind of know from an early age what I wanted to do. Um, And having that certainty and and having that feeling that, yeah, this is the right thing. It can definitely carry you through uh, the challenging times that any career can face us with.
0: Well, they do say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I've heard that saying. <laughs> I, I I love it, but it is definitely still work. But Absolutely. sure, yes, yeah. it's um I I feel I certainly feel grateful, um, to do something that I really love doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, things could definitely be worse. I mean, you could be pushing boxes in a factory or working customer service.
1: Although I always feel like every, every person has their own path. They, they just have to know it and and hopefully have support, you know, from their family and community to know it. And, um, it's definitely work that I love doing, but, uh, but there's definitely the work aspect, which is why we journalists and and we writers in general drink so much coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I think that part of the economy will always keep going (laughs) no matter what.
0: Yeah. My dad always used to say there's a couple of industries that are never going out of business. Teachers. And funeral directors. People always want to learn, and people are always gonna die. And now, I guess you could throw in
1: coffee meals. or make coffee. Those yeah. were the, those were the uh, <laughs> those are the, three
0: the Oh, it them. sounds like I he know. was
1: pretty concrete about it. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's kind of how he is. But I'm gonna ask you the hardest question of this entire interview: What is your favorite story in the Plague Confessor? That
1: wow, that is a hard question. <laughs> like um, a and honestly, favorite, it's a fair yeah. question yeah. and one I should have seen coming. I think that, um, I, I think I would say, in all fairs, to me, the, the favorite one, personally, um, might be the plague confessor itself, mm-hmm. um, but also Kites, which is uh, the last story in the book. And, and the reason for that is that, um, and, and the story is not, none of the stories are really intended as, as political statements um, but certainly the the political and cultural turmoil of of the times is is reflected in them Mm -hmm. that um, the for anyone who can remember um, the balkan wars were an absolute atrocity in our modern history and uh, they it is from that period that we get the euphemistic term ethnic cleansing Mm-hmm. And there were, in fact, um, a, a number of terrible things happening in different parts of the world around that, around that time. And and sadly, we find that genocide is something that remains um, with us even in in our modern world. And I felt that there were there were many difficult things to parse. And that you know, I did not live in that part of the world. I don't have anyone personally connected to me who lived there. Mm -hmm. But there were a number of things that that happened or that were being reported out by civilians and and victims that I felt um, that that when respectfully done in the form of a short story Mm -hmm. might um, perhaps speak to others who maybe have carried their own traumas um, or their own experiences. And so above all, I set out to try to write a good story Um, but I remember, um, the feeling and the emotion itself of writing that story. Um, and also with that, even here in the United States where things were relatively stable, it was a difficult, difficult time economically. And it was a difficult time to be part of my generation, which is generation X. Mm. So I think that there were a lot of things from, uh, my life personally in that story and from the historical events in which they're cast. That I feel like when I stand back and, and look at a piece of work and say, yeah, I think, um, you know, because I think it's important for everyone to be their own toughest critic. And, and if you say, well, um, this, is, this has helped me to, to sort of get where I need to go. And hopefully it brings the, the reader on a worthwhile journey as well.
0: Well, very well said once again. Now, where can people find your works? Uh, we know it's on Amazon, but how about past works? Uh, as well as the play confessor and whereabouts online can other people find you such as your website, social medias, anything like that.
1: Available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And as are, um, four of my five poetry books, the play confessor and four of my poetry books, um, the scarlet dancing, dear deepest Ghosts, night's Island and pretty green thorns. They're all available. Um, and we're all published by Emu Books, and so they're all available on Amazon. I can also be reached at my webs then my website, Megsmithwriter.com. Mm-hmm. And um I have a Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Megsmithwriter. And um I'm on Twitter at um at Megsmith underscore writer. So I'd love for folks to visit me at any of those places and uh drop a line, um, and they can also reach out to me through those places if they want to order a book directly through Mm -hmm. me as well.
0: Do they get it signed if you do it that way?
1: Yes, I'm I'm most happy um, and honored to sign copies of any books that are ordered from me directly.
0: That's pretty awesome. Now, I have one last question for you, and given the situation in the world right now, it may or may not be a great question, but do you have any plans to promote the book, either through in-person readings or signings or whatever uh, authors do when they you know release a book into the wild
1: sure that's that is that's also a really great question there's absolutely no doubt that um that the coronavirus has had so many impacts on on so many different parts of our lives for writers um with books it has definitely had an impact in for example um, there are literary festivals that have either been canceled or gone to a virtual format. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Jack Kerouac, who was born here in Lowell, Mass. Um, mm-hmm. I was on the board for a long time uh, for uh, Lowell Celebrates Kerouac, mm-hmm. um, where we put on a, fe- a festival in Jack Kerouac's honor. That's an example of one that's gone virtual. Obviously, many um, regular poetry readings, including ones where I've been honored to be a feature, mm-hmm. those are either being done virtually or they've been canceled. Um, So, yeah, there's been a lot of a need to adapt. And certainly I've been um, trying to raise visibility through virtual events. Um, I've been featured and will be featured in some upcoming virtual poetry events. Certainly, um, I'm honored to be part of a podcast such as yours, uh, because I think that definitely helps get the word out. Mm -hmm. And I I think all of us are going through that process of adaptation. So I think... uh, If we're going to go through a pandemic, uh, we're all really fortunate to be in a time where we do have um, online media, where we can uh, still reach one another and have that conversation.
0: Absolutely. Meg Smith, thank you very much for joining me today on the Ominous Origins podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and have a safe and happy Halloween, everyone.
0: And with that, The Plague Confessor is available on Amazon. And be sure to reach out to Meg on her website or social media. Maybe just to say hi or maybe to tell her how much her work has inspired you as a creative in whatever field you work in or create in.
1: Thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation that way.